Maybe around the world. And thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counselling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. That's jewsforjudaism.ca, the website, jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobak. It's so good to be back as the prodigal son here. <laughs> <laughs> it's Where? great to have you back, my friend. I know you've been traveling around the countryside. You've been very, very busy. And it's marvelous to have you back on the program because we're up to... Well, Psalm chapter 6 is where we are. That's right. Well, I'll tell you what, shall I Shall I read it out? I like when you read it because you sound very godly with your accent. <laughs> <laughs> you reckon the Aussie accent's very godly? Well, more than a Bronx accent, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, before I read it out, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever heard of, and you probably haven't, uh, being there in Canada, I don't think there's something... Uh, that you have there, but have you ever heard of Ross River Fever? Um, I might have gotten the shots as a kid. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Ross River Fever is something that uh, we have here. Now, not throughout the whole of, of Australia. It's a virus. It's uh, something that can affect people in probably the, the upper quarter, the northern quarter of Australia. And it's a, a mosquito-borne virus, kind of like malaria. And, uh, and what it, the symptoms of Ross River virus is, uh, I, I, I've heard people talk about this and I, I looked it up just to confirm, that they feel as if all their bones have been broken. And the reason why is because uh, all the joints suffer extreme, uh, an extreme arthritic effect. And it just feels like they, they, all their bones break, they can't move, everything aches and hurts. They're incredibly lethargic, very weak, and all they do is sweat, sweat, sweat. And uh, they have to really keep up their fluids because the body is fighting hard to deal with the virus. Now, it it can last up to, I think, a month, uh, and it really does go on for uh, for some time. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. Now, once you've had it, you can't get it again. You, you become immune. It's not life-threatening, I don't think, but it's a horrible, terrible thing to have to go through. That's Ross River fever. It's not incredibly common, but uh, as I said, the top quarter of, uh, uh, of Australia, uh, where it's a little bit more humid, you know, it's, uh, and I believe also up in uh, uh, Indonesia, Papua New Guinea. So, uh, Toby, you better look out. I know he's <laughs> been in Indonesia. <laughs> but, uh, but it is around. Now, when I read uh, Chapter 6, that is the first thing that came to my mind. And uh, so, let me read it and then let me get your opinion on that. It begins, uh, to the chief musician with stringed instruments on an, and now I've got here, on an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. It begins, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for all my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake, for in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give thanks to you? I am weary with my groaning at night's. I soak my bed. It says, it says all, all night, in fact, I make my bed swim is what I have in the New King James. It continues, I drench my couch with my tears. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. 
Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard my weeping, the Lord has heard my supplication, the Lord has received, will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Michael. Well, that's, uh, that's an amazing correspondence between that illness that you uh, mentioned it, and what, what David seems thing, to be going Yeah, I know. It's the first thing that I thought. And then I, I wondered, is David actually talking about a physical illness? Now, I'm not suggesting that he had Ross River fever, but maybe it's something similar. Um, the, the Talmud actually speculates on what he was suffering from. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's standard Jewish interpretation is that David really composed this psalm when he was uh, bedridden with a horrible illness. Um, there, there are some sources in the Talmud and the Midrash which say this is really towards the end of his life, and it had some connection with his sin with Bathsheba, although it's not entirely clear from the psalm um, that that was the cause of this illness. Um, but he certainly, and we know that about David from the Psalms in general, is that he um, always felt that his suffering was um, a way of punishing or cleansing him from sin. Um, So he certainly felt this way. And another thing that seems to emerge from the Psalm is that not only is he suffering from some horrible illness, but that uh, he speaks about enemies, you know, people, human beings that are giving him a hard time. And the Talmud says that there were actually people outside of his house demonstrating and clamoring, you know, hoping that he was going to die from this illness. Because, you know, we know that there was a a, a rebellion against David Mm -hmm. and that people turned against him. So, you know, there are two things happening in this psalm. One is that he's suffering from this terrible uh, illness uh, and also he feels... Uh, set upon by, you know, all the people that are also giving him a hard time. And he mentions both of them in the psalm. Um, Now, this is going to be something that comes up in all the psalms in terms of interpretation. Um, There is this surface level reading of the psalm being about David and his personal suffering. But some people read the psalm as uh, speaking, I guess, more metaphorically of the suffering of the nation of Israel in exile. Um, David is the king, you know, his personal suffering is a personification of the suffering of the nation. And we actually see in scripture that um, the the suffering of the Jewish people in exile is actually described as physical illness. Um, It's a common, uh, I guess, metaphor or language of the Bible is to speak about uh, national suffering and exile specifically as illness, as sickness. Would we, uh, now, when, when you mention that, the first thing that comes to my mind, and would this be a fair example, uh, would be Isaiah 53. Yeah, well, I want to get back to that later, mm-hmm. um, because you certainly see that language in Isaiah 53, um, you know, uh, very clearly. That's the most well-known example, um, but you see it in Jeremiah chapter 30. Mm-hmm. Where God says, I will restore you to health. I'll heal you of your wounds, declares the Lord, because Mm -hmm. they have called you an outcast, saying it is Zion. No one cares for her. Um, Hosea chapter 6, he says, come let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. Um, 
earlier on in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 26, and the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days. On the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Um, again, you don't have a nation getting bruised and you know bandaged, but that's the language of Scripture. Mm-hmm. The book of Micha, chapter 1 in the prophet Micha, Micah, chapter n- verse 9, for her wound is incurable. It's come to Judah. It's reached the gate of my people, even to Jerusalem. Um, so, this is quite common in the Bible to sort of, um, on a metaphorical level, speak mm-hmm. of Israel's national suffering uh, in exile as of illness and, and as of being wounded. Um, so, that's going to be a sub-theme here, and we're going to get back to that. Um, and what's also important to know before we actually uh, go through a verse-by-verse description of this psalm is that this particular chapter has found its way into the daily prayer book. Um, so, this chapter, the entire chapter is incorporated into the daily prayers mm-hmm. uh, in Jewish tradition, except for certain days, um, like the Sabbath and holidays. Um, but there's a prayer we call Tachanun, which is really a, uh, a prayer of um, confession and, uh, and a, really a plea for personal and national forgiveness. It's a pretty heavy prayer. It has a number of passages from Scripture that we recite. Um, but this is one of the central pieces of it. Um, so, what was interesting is that the very first verse, I think, is uh, important in setting the tone for what's going on, because as you pointed out, it speaks about this instrument that mm. this will be accompanied by. Um, we the know Shemini. that the Levites, right, the Shminit, mm. and the Hebrew word Shmini is eighth, or eight. Um, Shmona is the number eight. So, mm. in, the, in the temple, the Levites would play instruments, we know, and they sang in the temple. Um, so, what's interesting is that normally, the harp or the lyre that they used in the temple had seven strings. Um, this seems to be an unusual kind of harp or lyre with eight strings. And what the sages teach in the Midrash is that um, normally, the eight-stringed harp will be played, will be the one that's used in the Messianic age. Um, that the seven-stringed harp was sort of the normal one that's used in the temple, and that they speak about in the future, we're going to have an eight-stringed harp. But David apparently composed this psalm specifically for the eight-stringed harp. Mm-hmm. Um, seven, right, in, in Jewish mystical teaching is always the number of the natural order. The seven days of the week and the seven colors in the rainbow and the seven notes in the musical scale. I mean, seven is always associated with the completion of the natural order in the world. Mm -hmm. And eight is always seen in Jewish literature as the number of, not of natural order, but supernatural, of transcendence, um, going beyond um, so, for example, just as a cute thing, you take the number eight, you turn it on its side, it becomes a sign for infinity. Um, sure. But, but, but eight is, um, you know, in all of mystical literature, is the number of going beyond the natural order. And mm-hmm. so, it goes, it speaks of the messianic age. Um, I found something interesting. I didn't see it in any of the commentaries that the name of the Almighty, the Tetragrammaton, mm-hmm. appears eight times in this psalm. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Now, why is that significant? <laughs> Maybe we'll discover that. Um, the Talmud connects this psalm to circumcision. 
um, which is done on the eighth on day, the eighth day yeah. right? And it's also the eighth commandment given by God because the Talmud speaks about the seven Noahide laws that were given to humanity and then the first law given to Abraham, which would be the eighth commandment in general, mm. was the commandment of circumcision. So, for some reason, the Talmud connects this whole psalm, interestingly, to circumcision. Now, how does this all tie together? So, we know that David would, he was a very spiritual person. So, you know, when he was sick, he understood that there was a spiritual reason for his sickness. Mm-hmm. Um, and he would use the experience of illness um, and the pain of illness to really as an exercise in, in loosening the grip of the physical on his life. I mean, he understood that, look, he was a very sensual person. And he understood that, you know, it, it was exactly that that got him into trouble. He's like what you would call a type A personality in some ways. Um, you know, the alpha male. <laughs> so, but he was not the regular alpha male because he was also the, called the sweet singer of Israel. Mm. But he had a side of him that, you know, was a warrior and, um, and was very, you know, physical and, you know, he was... He, he succumbed to his lusts for Bathsheba. Mm-hmm. So, you know, to him, he understood that his very, very powerful, um, sensual side and passionate side um, can get him into trouble. And he felt that that, you know, trouble is what was the cause of this illness. So, if it was the cause of the illness, the illness itself can loosen the grip of the sensual, the physical over him. Um, you know, you're not really in your top form uh, when you're so sick, obviously. Mm. And we know that the messianic age, which again is hinted at in this psalm because of number eight, the messianic age is going to be an age where there's some degree of transcendence over the physical, meaning that it'll be a more spiritual kind of world. And the commentaries say that circumcision as well was given as a sign for the Jewish people that we need to control our sensual side. That many of the commentaries, when they discuss the covenant of circumcision, you know, it's like, why would God put this sort of sign of, of, uh, you know, the covenant between him and his people on the male reproductive organ? Mm -hmm. And he said, it's, it's a way of reminding us that we need to be in control of our physical passions. Just I'll point out one more thing before we plow ahead. Um, Rabbi Shimshon Frol Hirsch points out, he just notices that there's another psalm that begins exactly in the same way. If you, in a few weeks, we'll get to Psalm 12, which also um, begins, La Matzeach Ben Ginos Al Hashminit, for the performer on the eight-string harp. Uh-huh. And yeah. he suggests that these two psalms, Psalm 6 and Psalm 12, are actually very similar, that the psalmist in both tries to um, you know, raise the human spirit from a state of despair because, you know, and there's a lot of despair that David's experiencing in this psalm. I mean, mm. he's being crushed, crushed by this illness and crushed by the torment of these people that are going after him. Mm. So, the, the purpose of the psalm is to somehow raise himself up from that state of despair. Um, in both psalms, there's sort of a realization that you can't really expect any ultimate help from other people. It's all going to have to be, the trust has to be put into God to help. And there's also a confidence that God is going to intervene. The only difference really between the Psalms is that, you know, the Psalm 6 that we're going to be reading really focuses on the despair of an individual 
on the surface reading of it, but Psalm 12 really speaks more on the societal level as a whole. Um, but it's worth, you know, for people that want to study this psalm more to compare it to Psalm 12. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, if you're ready to go to verse 2. Sure. O oh Lord, do not <laughs> rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in, I've got your hot displeasure. Wow, that's the worst kind of displeasure hey. when it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, it's interesting that uh, you have many passages in the Bible which speaks about um, you know loving rebuke, um, and not just that that we should love the rebuke of God. Um, even we should love the rebuke of others. Mm. It's actually a commandment in the Bible to rebuke people who are straying. Mm. Um, Proverbs chapter three verse twelve says yeah. that God rebukes those that He loves. Um, so even though rebuke is positive, it's it's uh, helpful. You know, we can't really live without it. But we'll see later on in in this in the book of Psalms in chapter ninety four verse twelve. Um, it says, "Do not chastise me in your rage." Meaning that it's one thing to to get constructive criticism like a, a parent to a child, but you know when it's coming with rage and, and anger, mm. you know that's not so constructive, and it's really and sometimes even if it's constructive, you may not hold up you know in the in the face of all that uh, hot <laughs> wrath and hot mm. rage. Mm. Um, so I think what David is saying here is that he accepts divine punishment. David was not someone who was you know uh, rejecting the idea that he needs to be disciplined, but he was asking that it not really come upon him all at once. You know, like it's, it, it, if you get it all at once, he won't be able to, to survive. You know, in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 10, verse 24, Jeremiah writes, correct me, O Lord. He wants to be corrected, but in judgment, not in anger, right? So, th- there has to be some, you know, tempering of the judgment and the reproof and the admonishment and the discipline. Otherwise, people can break underneath it. The Midrash has an amazing uh, analogy. The Midrash says once that there was a king that was angered by his son. And the king, in his anger, swore that he would throw a huge boulder at his son's head. So, after reconsidering this, you know, he said, well, he realized if I throw the huge boulder at my son's head, there's not going to be any more sun. (laughs) So, what he did was he smashed the rock into many, many small pebbles, and he threw these small pebbles at his son one at a time. So, that the son was going to get punished with this rock, but it wasn't going to happen in a way that it would kill the son. Mm. You know, it's going to be more, you know, he'll be able to receive that kind of rebuke. Um, So, again, it's a, it's a, it's an, uh, analogy it's not to be taken literally but you know there are ways in which rebuke can just crush us and it's not helpful at that point mm. no and and uh, there's also uh, and and the uh, the example that comes to mind is in uh, Exodus chapter 32 in regards to the uh, golden calf and i'm just looking here it's uh, this is verse 9 uh, and again, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people. Indeed, they are a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone uh, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and I will make you a great nation. And what follows is uh, is the pleading from Moses. And we see that that, that pleading uh, pays off. And I guess David here is uh, experiencing the the, uh, God's rebuke in his anger, the, his hot displeasure, but at the same time he's saying, please have mercy with me. He's pleading with God uh, to 
relent, I suppose, is, is uh, perhaps the word. And it's interesting, by the way, because the argument that Moses uses actually several times in the Bible to, you know, get God to lay off mm. <laughs> the Jewish people is very similar to what David will be saying here in this psalm. Um, you know, in the psalm here, David says, you know, look, if, if I'm dead, I'm not going to be able to praise you. And, you know, what's, what's the point? Mm. And, uh, you know, what, one of the argument that Moses uses very successfully with God, he says basically, do it for your sake, God. Yeah. Meaning that if you, if you destroy the Jewish people, first of all, he says, you're going to look impotent in the eyes of the nations mm. who are going to say, look, this God, you know, could destroy the Egyptians but couldn't get his own people to go into their promised land. Mm. But Moses is really appealing to the fact that, you know, he says, God, you chose this people for a purpose. And, you know, th- that purpose is not going to be served by, by killing these people, by wiping them out. And he really says, you know, God, ultimately, the goal of everything, the whole point of this nation is to raise you up in the eyes of the world. Mm. And so, you know, if they're not here, they can't raise you up. They can't praise you. And so, David in this psalm says the same thing. You know, if you crush me too much, I'm just, I'm, I can't do anything. And so, you know, just, mm. you know, give me a break. Sure. <laughs> Basically what he's saying. Um, so, again, you know, verse 3, you don't have to read it again, but he sort of seems, he's intimating at the fact that not only he's facing an illness and pain, but there are these adversaries that are giving him a hard time, and that's why he's so broken. Mm. And he's, it's not just that he's broken physically, he's broken emotionally um, because, you know, it's all he needs. Like, it's one thing to be, you know, uh, suffering in bed from a horrible illness, but, you know, to have people that are clamoring for your death, you know, that's all you need. you like, you know, it's nice to have people visit you in the hospital with, right. you know, some balloons and stuff. That's yeah. nice. You know? But having people screaming at your door, I hope he dies, you know, that's, that's, that's not really, that doesn't that's help. not helpful. That's not no. helpful. Now, uh, no. verse four really had me intrigued. Can I ask you about that now? Or am, am I yeah. jumping ahead? Well, it's just the way that it is worded is really is intriguing. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, oh Lord, how long? Yeah, you know, it, it, it's actually, um, it, it's a question which is obviously a rhetorical question. And what I think he's saying is, God, how long are you going to remain silent? How long are you going to just sit there and, and not do anything? You know, because he's basically speaking here as someone, it's not as if, you know, he's been suffering for two hours and now he's giving up. Mm. He's probably be, been racked in pain for a long time. And, you know, I guess at the point that this psalm is coming out um, from his soul and from his heart, you know, he's saying at this point already, you know, how long are you going to remain silent and refrain from helping me? Um, How long, maybe he's saying, how long are you going to keep on afflicting me? Mm. You know, he's saying, look, if the whole purpose, God, of illness is to wake up the sinner. You know, you made your point. (laughs) I think that's what he might be saying. Like, you've gotten Mm. your point across. I'm I'm contrite and I'm broken. Mm. I accept it. Like, okay, let's move on. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. And that's the feeling that I got from it as well. Yeah. Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. For in death... There is no remembrance of you, and this is what you're saying, in the grave, who will give you thanks? Now, what does this say? Can we, should we go deeper here in regards to Sheol and then things like that? So, let's, let's go slowly for a minute. Sure. Um, he says here, release my soul. Um, 
and the word is interesting. The word release here comes up a number of times in scripture. Chaltsa um, here uh, from the the, in, uh, the root would be chetlamitzadi chalatz. Mm-hmm. Um, what you get the sense of from this word in scripture is that you're sort of um, releasing something or you're removing something uh, from a very tight place. So you find it in the book of Leviticus when they had to break down a house that was infected with uh, leprosy. Mm-hmm. So in chapter 14, verse 40, it says, V'chaltsu avanim. They had to take away the stones, remove the stones. And the most famous example is with something called chalitza. Same exact word, chalitza nafshi here, release my soul. And chalitza, the woman who was supposed to marry someone's brother, right? If her husband died and they were childless. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there was the Leverite marriage. Yep. Um, but if the, if the brother refused to marry her, so in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 9, there's a ritual that they go through where she removes his shoe mm. and then she basically spits in his presence. And so that word is used also, the chalza na'alo, that she would remove his shoe. And so, what David, I think, is saying here is, um, you know, if, if you'll free my soul from what? From really the burden of guilt, meaning mm-hmm. that what he's realizing is that what's causing his pain is it, it was a result of his sin. And so, if he's able to tran- get past the guilt of this sin, because he really is, I guess, going through major repentance, he feels that his health will improve. Um, and then he says that it's for the purpose of your kindness, um, meaning that he wants God's loving kindness to be known. When he says that releasing my soul from this pain and sick- sickness um, and you s- you'll save me, um, really as it ben- as be- benefits or as is appropriate from your kindness or for your kindness, what he's saying is that your loving kindness may become known if I'm able to praise you. That's the mm. argument that we've been talking about. Um, so he's really saying, don't do it necessarily because I'm deserving. That was Moses' argument as well. The, the, the Jews may not be deserving you know, of a complete pardon, but as you say in the next verse, no one can praise you in death or in the grave um, or in the lower world. It's, mm. you know, the, the, these, the, the word Sheol is used really for the grave um, for the for what happens after you die, which is, you know, you're in the grave. Mm. Um, you're, you're not active down there. You're not doing too much. Mm. Um, as a matter of fact, the, the Talmud says that sleep itself is a 60th of death because, you know, when you're sleeping, you're not active. You're not really doing anything. Mm. Um, but in, in Sheol, you know, you're on a complete vacation. There's like <laughs> nothing happening. And so anything that is positive that can come out of my illness and my restoration, um, which would be for me to be able to praise you, um, it's not going to happen. So, this right. verse 6 really is a continuation of his argument from the previous verse, is that, look, God, help me, he's really saying to God, he's saying, help me to spread the knowledge of your loving kindness in the world. And if I die, I won't be able to recount mm. your praises. You know, I'm going to be basically... Uh, um, stifled mm. and, and that's not good for either of us um, you know you read verse 7 which is such an amazing you know poet poetry 
you know, that he speaks about drenching his bed or making my bed swim. And you think mm. you have this image, right, of of the bed swimming. You know, the bed itself is like floating up in the air because it's being the bed itself is drowning in the, in the tears of David. Mm. Um, some of the translations have, you know, with uh, with my tears, I soak my couch, or actually, some of them translated, my couch is melted with my tears. Like, imagine oh, this. wow! Yeah, I mean, it, it's very, very. It's it, it's basically like hyperbole, meaning obviously, um, you know. Well, but it's an interesting thing because, as I mentioned before, in Ross River fever, that's one of the primary uh, uh, symptoms. Uh, is that uh, particularly at night when when you just want to. You just want to sleep, but all you're doing is sweating, and it's uh, it's horrible. And they literally do soak, drench uh, the bed, and they have to really keep up their fluids so that it, they don't dehydrate, um, which is just the, the body's natural uh, response to trying to eliminate a, a virus. But uh, it's certainly characteristic of that. And, and here, I mean, it's just so emphasized, isn't it? Because it says... Uh, I, I I drench. I've got. I drench my couch with tears all night. All night I make my bed swim. Oy. But if you're right, making the bed swim. I mean, you th- you see this room filled with tears. Mm. So the bed bed's actually floating on, on this river of tears. Yeah, it's not the kind I of mean, water bed you want. <laughs> you know, the midrash actually, really? the rabbinic midrash says that he'd have to change his bedding seven times a night. Yeah. That's how that's how much crying he was doing. And and it, we have to remember, it wasn't just crying out of pain. He was crying out of repentance and out of remorse. Um, you know, he had a broken heart. And so, um, you know, it's, it's a very, very beautiful verse that describes, you know, how broken he mm. was, not just physically, but, but spiritually. Mm. Uh, and then he goes on in verse 8, again, with, you know, continuing the, uh, the imagery of um, his eyes, because he was saying that, well, this is interesting because I've got, uh, in verse 8, I've got, and I don't know if this is, I mean, maybe this just lends to the um, the fact that this could be a, a metaphor rather than any, than something physical because it says my eye, I've got singular, my eye wastes away because, and here here is the because, because of my grief, not because of my illness, but because of my grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Michael. Yeah, and, you know, that's... You know, a pretty, pretty accurate uh, translation. Some people actually translate it as dimmed with anger because um, hmm. the word chaos means anger, literally. Um, now, he might have been angry at, you know, just himself. He might have been angry probably at his, at his you know, the people that were calling for his death. You know, he might have mm-hmm. been very frustrated at this point. But I think a better translation in terms of context is grief, that he was... Um, his eyes were weakened from grief because in the previous verse, he was speaking about all this crying that mm. he was doing, mm. right? So, he was crying so much that his eyes became dimmed, you know, through all this crying. Um, it, it's an interesting word here that the, they use um, when it says, aged by my tormentors. You know, the word in Hebrew is ataka, ataka which, you know, is from the Hebrew atik. Um, that's the word for sort of ancient or aged. But it's very similar to the English word antique. You know, mm. there's, a, there's a, a wonderful book. It's a book called the, the Word. And it goes through, you know, it's a dictionary of Hebrew showing how um, Isaac Moseson, thank God, <laughs> Isaac Moseson, uh, the word shows how Hebrew is often the, 
the root of many, many different languages, many mm. words in different languages. So he's got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And actually, since writing the book, he's been doing this, expanding it online. Um, so here, this is a great example that the word aged, you know, this word atik in Hebrew, you know, is a pretty close to the word we use in English for things that are old, antique. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, and, and, um, he, he's continuing to describe, you know, his physical and his emotional torment. Mm. And what happens now in verse 9 is that he, because it wasn't really, I guess it was clear when he spoke about his, um, uh, I guess in verse 6, he spoke about his tormentors. So, in verse 9, he, he confronts them, right? He says that he, he wants them to depart, um, and I think what he's saying here in this verse, depart from me, all you evildoers, um, for God has heard the sound of my weeping. I think what he's saying is, look, guys, there's no more point in gloating anymore you know, over my illness because he, David feels very strongly in the end of the psalm that God has heard his cries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he just assumes this. And we saw this in other psalms where David yeah. prays and he calls out to God and he just assumes that his prayers are answered. Mm. That's how much trust he has in God. So, um, that's what he's saying. He says, look, you know, there's no point in you tormenting anymore. Just give up your whatever you're trying to do because I'm okay now. Mm. Uh, he felt okay. He has, it says, he has heard uh, the voice of my weeping. He has heard my supplication. He will receive my prayers. So, let all the enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Yeah. Let them turn back. And be ashamed suddenly. Suddenly. Why suddenly? Well, that's why before, right, when we spoke about the possibility that this um, psalm is doing more than just recounting the illness and suffering of David. But what it may be alluding to is the, you know, the, the, the fate and destiny of the people of Israel in their history, which you know, the Bible describes it's going to be a difficult history that, you know, the Bible speaks about the fact that, you know, we're going to suffer as a nation mm-hmm. and we're going to really be, um, you know, uh, at the mercy of nations that will not be friendly to us. And so, I think that what it's saying here is that, look, we have a history of, the, you know, they, they speak about, books were written, the longest hatred, like the hatred for the Jews. Mm. They speak about the greatest hatred, the longest hatred. But the Bible speaks about the fact that it's going to change, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, we have so many passages in the Bible where the enemies of the Jewish people just wake up one day. And it seems to be, in some ways, coming out of nowhere, because what you'll describe in the, like the book of Isaiah are all these accounts of how the people of Israel are going to suffer and be despised and rejected. And then sort of out of nowhere, you know, it speaks about the nations of the world recognizing that, wait a second, uh, we're the ones that are wrong. Mm. Um, you know, you have the famous passage in Jeremiah 16 verse 19, where it says that the nations, Gentiles, will come from the ends of the earth, admitting that they've only inherited lies and vanity of Mm -hmm. things and no meaning. And really, the end of chapter 52, right, of the book of Isaiah, the last three verses um, speak about God's servant um, is ultimately going to be lifted up, exalted, and raised very high. Mm -hmm. 
And then we're told that the nations and kings of the world are going to be shocked. They're going to shut their mouths. Um, so you have this picture throughout the, the Tanakh about the this incredible suffering of the Jewish people, persecution, um, despised and rejected, but it's going to end at one point, and the world's going to wake up, and they're going to see, as chapter 16 Isaiah says, the nations will come to your light. Mm. You know, that we're supposed to be a light to the nations uh, in chapter 42 of Isaiah, chapter 49 of Isaiah, and one day we're told they're going to come to your light. Um, so, what's interesting is that the end of chapter four, 52 of Isaiah really seems to say that the nations are going to be shocked um, by a number of things. They're going to be shocked by the unexpected recovery of the Jewish people because, you know, the, here we have been downtrodden, persecuted, um, you know, rejected throughout our history, and then there's going to be a turnaround. Mm. God's going to exalt his servant. And so in 13, behold, my servant shall be, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Right. And it says that this is something they never expected. That which they were told they, you know, that which they had been told they didn't expect. Mm. They were never told this. They never expected this. This is, this is the news that they were never expecting. And so in this Psalm, David's enemies were not expecting his recovery, okay. um, and they're going to be ashamed that they were praying for his death. So, as it says um, in verse 15 of, of Isaiah chapter uh, 52, uh, so shall he um, startle many nations. And so, I, I suppose there's the uh, the suddenly that, that we're talking about here in verse 11 of uh, Psalm 6. Exactly. Okay. By the way, the suddenness is not just the, the suddenness of the turnaround, um, but some of the commentaries say that um, they are going to be instantly shamed or shamed for a moment only. Meaning that it's not just that they're going to be shamed instantly, but that their shame will be instantaneous or for a moment because they'll be forgiven immediately. Meaning that we saw earlier in the book of Psalms, and it was quite amazing about David, that he was willing to forgive his enemies. He was willing to, you know, sort of not hold a grudge against them and not just forgive them, but he seemed to be desiring to really restore relationships. And so what the psalm here seems to be hinting at is that these people who were literally praying for David to, to succumb to his illness when they recognize that they were wrong um, and they'll be ashamed, it'll only be for a moment because David is going to forgive them immediately. Um, and I think that's the projection of what's going to happen at the end of history is that, you know, this shame of the nations of the world that they had per persecuted Israel for so long, the goal is not that for them to remain in shame forever. The goal is for them to really rise above that and mm -hmm. to, you know, embrace God and embrace the Jewish people as God's teachers in the world. That's Zechariah chapter 8, where they're supposed to be saying, look, we want to follow you. We've heard God is with you. Mm. Um, so, there's no, there's no desire, you know, for at the end of history, the Jews to, to lord it over the nations of the world and say, you know, nah, 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 you know, and to make them, you know, uh, suffer, you know, for all the suffering they put us through. Mm -hmm. That's not the goal. The goal is that the world should wake up, and when you wake up, now we move forward in a positive way. 
Right. Um, now, what's interesting, just a, another point here, if I may, sure. is that um, this dynamic where the scripture speaks about David on this sort of simple level, but the deeper reading or the subtext is that it also speaks about the story of Israel. Mm-hmm. So, you have this um, tension um, in the Bible in a number of places. Just as an example, um, the, the famous passage in Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of the four beasts, and then he mm-hmm. sees this um, son of man, one like a man, who appears before the Ancient of Days, and he's totally stymied by this vision. He can't figure out what in the world is going on, where you know they have these four beasts, and then the son of man comes before the ancient of days and is given dominion and honor and rulers and you know rulership uh, and glory, and he just can't understand what the vision is. And so, uh, in as it happens in a few places in the book of Daniel, an angel comes to explain the vision to Daniel. Mm. And what the angel tells Daniel at, toward the end, uh, the middle and the end of chapter seven is that, look, Daniel, this son of man, this one like a man, is not a person. That's what the angel said. It's not a person. It's a people. And he tells Daniel that, you know, that who is going to receive dominion and honor and rulership? He says it's the um, people, the holy ones, the holy nation, the, the, the holy ones of the holy nation. And so, it's obviously not a person. It's a holy nation. Mm-hmm. And the scripture speaks about Israel as, you know, uh, a holy nation, mm. Goy Kadosh, Exodus chapter 19. So, the, the, the simple level of reading Daniel chapter 7, which is the level that the angel explains it at, is that the one like a man is Israel, is the nation of Israel. But Rashi and others in their commentary say that, that the son of man is the Messiah. So, Who is representative of Israel, of course. And not just representative, but when you think about it, you know, in in Christianity, the Messiah really is not connected to the people. The the, the Christian concept of Messiah is a pre-existent supernatural being Mm. who doesn't really have any ultimate connection uh, to the people. He's not part of a nation. Whereas in Jewish thought, in the biblical thought, the, the Messiah is king of Israel, meaning that he is part of the nation. He is the tip of the iceberg. He is the leader of the people. But he's part of the people. Mm. He's not something that's, that's uh, removed from the people. And so, what Rashi is saying here is that when will the nation of Israel receive glory and honor and rulership and dominion? When is that going to happen? So, Rashi is saying it's going to happen when the Messiah is at their helm. When they're being when when they were being led by their messianic king, hmm. that's when it's going to happen. And so, in the same way, when rabbinic commentary says that Isaiah fifty three is about the Messiah, right? It's saying the same thing. It's saying when will it be that Israel, God's servant, will be exalted, lifted up, and raised very high at the end of chapter fifty two? When is that going to happen? So the Talmudic commentaries say that's going to be in the times of the Messiah. Hmm. So, the idea of, you know, the um, eschatological lifting up of the nation of Israel, you know, that only happens in the Messianic age. So, when Scripture speaks about the fate of the Jewish people, um, you know, often it's tied up with the coming of Messiah. 
And so here, David is king of Israel, right? David the Melech Israel, David mm. king of Israel. So really what happens to him often describes what is the fate of the Jewish right. people as well. Fascinating. Well, I wasn't expecting all of that. And I was, I was going to go back to uh, verse 9 where it says, Depart from me, all you uh, workers of iniquity. Because, of course, that's paraphrased, if not quoted, um, supposedly by Jesus in the book of, in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, where, again, an eschatological theme is applied. Uh, Jesus talks about what I call the great goat barbecue, where he puts all the <laughs> all the sheep on the right, I think, and all the goats on the left. Now, I... <laughs> and he says to the goats, depart from me all all you practices of uh, iniquity and tosses them into the, to the fire. Have you ever had goat? Oh, no, you're a vegetarian. Well, I wasn't born a vegetarian. <laughs> no Jewish kid is born a vegetarian. I shouldn't say that. There are some. No, I mean, I, 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 ate meat for, I ate meat for the first 27 years of my life, but um, I never had goat. Oh, no. you, you missed out, and it's all over now because you're a vegetarian. <laughs> it, it's delicious, and I can understand, you know, why you would barbecue the goats. But I, we used to raise goats, and uh, I was the shockhead of the family, and... They were absolutely delicious. But that's the only connection uh, that at least my new King James makes to the, uh, the Christian writings. And, uh, but that was far more in-depth. And I will put links uh, to uh, even more in-depth discussions that you and I have had in regards to Isaiah 53 at the bottom of this, uh, this post. Cool. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, are we done? I think that is there anything else you'd like to add? What did I say? That's all, folks. That's all. Thank you, my friend, Rabbi Michael Skoback, Jews for Judaism in Canada. Again, the website, jewsforjudaism.ca. Make sure you also uh, make time to go to the Jews for Judaism uh, YouTube channel. But there is so much on offer there as well. And again, thank you so much for your time, my friend. God bless you. It's been great. Look forward to speaking to you again very soon when we're going to dive into Psalm chapter 7. But until then... Dear listeners, be blessed and set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom.